Luke 14, 25 through 35, page 1039 in your pew Bible. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down at first and deliberate Deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000 men, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Grass withers, flower fades. Word of our God stands forever. So, again, like I said, we have a a very steep, tough passage. You'll notice one of the things you want to study and look for when you're reading the Bible and, and your various plans of going through the Bible, which I encourage you to be involved in, you should note things like repetitions of words. And we heard this morning three cannots from the mouth of Jesus. Anyone who does not do X, Y, Z cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus here is laying out some very tough language and descriptions of, of, of restriction against those who would feign or pretend discipleship. So how, how should the church, when we look at this passage, how should the church market itself today? How should discipleship to Jesus be marketed today? And you can get online and, and Google um, church marketing strategies and you could spend hours upon hours, all sorts of ideas of how a church should market itself, make itself more appealing and how we can get crowds in and all these different initiatives to try to market the church uh, as, as something they should be involved in. There are many ways that people try to talk their friends into acknowledging Jesus. And they may say things like, well, Jesus makes my life better and things that Jesus is always there to help me. And so there's these reasons why we would market. Here's how here's why you should come and be a part of the church. Come and be a disciple of Jesus. And churches spend huge amounts of money trying to make themselves um, appealing and comfortable and non-offensive to people. Like the last thing we want to do is to come in and have someone challenged um, because they might get offended and then, and then not want to, to take part. And so there, there's all these um, concerns and marketing, and, and many of them I wouldn't disagree with. There's, there's lots of elements to these things that are fine impulses. But then you read the Gospel of Luke. 
and you, and you hear Jesus' marketing strategy. And what's Christ's marketing strategy here? How does Jesus persuade people to follow him? He says, unless you give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your spouse, your children, even your own self. If you don't hate those things, you can't be my disciple. Isn't that an interesting marketing strategy? What is going on? The call from Jesus. You know, Jesus makes lots of calls. He'll say things like, um, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, there's a marketable phrase, is it not? I mean, that one, you might see that all over the board um, on churches, this call from Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus does say that. And that is a call from Jesus. And we do like to hear that because we are a weary and heavy laden people. And it absolutely is a call from Jesus. But it is not the only call from Jesus. It is not the only call, not even the predominant call. We've already kind of covered this once in our series through Luke. If you've got your Bible out still, flip back with me to chapter 9 in in the Gospel of Luke, page 1030, just about nine pages back from where we are. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says this, He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is a repeated call from Jesus, the high cost of discipleship. And Jesus is basically saying the same thing from to his disciples back there in 923 that he's saying to us this morning. Last week, we, we talked about Christ's free banquet that he's throwing. Remember last week, there's, you can just read at it. It's the whole beginning of, of chapter 14 up to this point of this great banquet that Jesus is throwing. And he's inviting and compelling the highways and the hedges This free banquet, come and join the banquet. And he's compelling people to come in. He's now, and he takes from this this language of the great banquet, come and enjoy the great banquet, to this turn, uh, this turn of, of here's this free banquet, and now Luke seemingly pulls in this contrasting reality of now here's the high cost of this free banquet. We're confronted with two giant realities. The first is that this great banquet is absolutely free. Christ has paid for it. The master is throwing this banquet absolutely free. And the second reality, this free banquet will cost you everything. This free banquet will cost you everything. And only one of those realities usually gets any playtime in our modern church view of following Christ. We like to make much of this banquet of Christ is totally free. And that's a good thing to emphasize because it is. So what we'll often say is this, the church would often say about Christ, this banquet is absolutely free and it will give you everything. Which is not false, but this is not the picture that Luke 14 brings up to us. This banquet is absolutely free and it will cost you everything. Everything. 
This is the language that, that Jesus uses. He's describing this call to follow him with this language that is much stronger than what we would typically hear today. He says following him and being his disciple means the death of all things. So how do you answer this call? Like lots of times when we read Bible, read scripture, especially if you're in the Old Testament or something, um, the, the hermeneutical method that we like to use, that I encourage you to use, is reading it in its historical context. So you'd have to take a passage and you're trying to figure out what did this passage mean to the original audience and then you get the theological principle. You don't, And so you would be concerned about what did this passage mean to those who were actually hearing it right then and there. This passage is not hard to do that with. This passage is to everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do you want to be a disciple of Christ? This passage is coming from the mouth of Jesus straight to you. How do you answer this question? How, do, you, do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to be his disciple? Then this is a statement coming from Jesus to you. You can't. If you are not willing to hate father, mother, brother, sister, uh, spouse, child, um, even your own self, you can't. If you're not willing to bear your cross, take up your own death, you can't. How do you answer this call from Jesus? How do you, if you desire to be a disciple of Christ, how do you answer this? There's, just, there's these two big ideas, 26 and 27, coming out. And we'll, we'll look at them separately, just briefly. These, these two uh, cannots, the first two cannots that Jesus lays out. Jesus is calling for the hatred of all else besides him. He's calling for this radical uh, hatred. I mean, mother, father, brother, there's every relationship that you have, and even of your own self, to be his disciple. Now, it's clear that in this comparison, Jesus is, is not calling for, um, he's calling for a hatred of all of these things in comparison to your love for him. And that's clear because Christ is at, you're, you're coming to be a disciple of Christ. So it is not that you just hate everything in the sense of hate for hate's sake. It is a comparison of when it comes to your love for Christ, standing against your love for all of these other relationships it is to look like hate in comparison to your radical love for Christ. There's, so this is comparison language that is being brought up here. But there's two realities we got to think about. If, if this is comparison language, the first is that he's using exaggerated language. I mean, it, is it hate? Like you actually to make hateful actions against your father, mother, brother, sister. To say that would be to deny other places where Jesus has clearly commanded us to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? That's a pretty clear, coming straight all the way back from the Ten Commandments of loving your neighbor. Honor your father and mother, the Fifth Commandment says. So is Jesus arguing honestly against the Ten Commandments and against his own teaching to love, your, love even your enemies and pray for them? I don't think Jesus is confused. He remembers that he said these things. But there is a comparative for how much you love him. He's using an exaggerated language. Hate for all these relationships in comparison to your love for him. That's the first thing we must remember. But the second thing that we must remember is that he's using that exaggerated language to make a point. 
Like he doesn't use the word hate just because he couldn't find a different word to use. There's a point he's trying to make of the radicalness of how incredible, how extreme it is in your discipleship of following Jesus that your other relationships begin to look like that hate for them in comparison to your love for Christ and what you are doing, for what your concern in obedience is your concern for obedience to him. He doesn't want us to miss the point of how radical this call to discipleship is. To follow Christ is to place him of higher value than everything else in your life. Everything. Yes, everything, even your own self. And that's how Jesus markets it. If you can't put him first over all other things, you cannot, it's restrictive language, you cannot be his disciple. Now, I immediately begin to ask, is this safe language? I mean, honestly, is this even a good idea to talk like this? I mean, I can feel this is a really quiet room this morning. Because is it safe to talk in this way? Hatred for other people? That's, that's How can we say that you're to go home and to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even your own self? Isn't this dangerous language? Certainly can be. If you don't, if we're not getting the distinctions, this could be and can be very dangerous language. But you ha- this is the question I want to put before you. Is it more dangerous for someone to hate all else in comparison to their love for Christ or for them to love all else and hate Christ? Which is more dangerous for those in relationship with you? Is it more dangerous for you to hate them in comparison to your love for Christ? Or is it more dangerous for them for you to love them by your own definitions in comparison to your hatred for Christ? Think of it this way. Is it better? Now, this is, this is tough language coming from the, the preacher who's up front, the pastor of the church who loves and cares and wants to shepherd and, and care for all of you. Is it safer for you, for me to hate you in comparison to my love for Christ? Or is it safer for me to love you And not really care about Christ. Which is safer for you? The best way for me to love you is to, quote unquote, I'll use it, hate you in comparison to my love for Christ. Because if I love you more than my love for Christ, when you show up, I would never give you the gospel. I would never tell you the good news about Jesus Christ because step one there is that you're a sinner under the wrath of God. And that might hurt your feelings. And I don't want to hurt your feelings because I love you more than I love Christ. And so I don't care what Christ has commanded. I'm going to, because I love you more than I love Christ, I'm not going to say things to you that hurt your feelings. And so I'm going to stay quiet on issues of the gospel. I'm not going to call you out on sinfulness when I see you behaving, when people, you know, when there's something in your life that is contrary to the will of God, because I love you more than Christ, I would never say to you, you should stop doing that and let you plunge into your own ruin It's safer for you that I, in comparison to love for Christ, that he's primary. How does this work for the leadership of this church as the elders try to think about how do we we, um, write, how do we uh, help push this ship forward? What what steps do we need to take as far as moving this forward, this, this church and this community? Is it safer for this church that the elders love the people more than they love Christ? 
Or is it better that the elders love Christ and desire to be obedient to him even more than the people who are here? Because it's safer for the church. It is safer for the church that love for Christ dominates over every relationship for the sake of pleasing God, for the sake of what does it benefit us to have a church that is full of flowery language and back padding and telling everyone how wonderful they are if the reality of God's word is that we are condemned sinners who need the work of Christ to reconcile us back to himself so that we can have eternal life and be saved from eternal damnation. That's a pretty important message, but it's a hurtful one. And so Christ is pushing on this to love him more than all else. And we, we, we hear that and we think that is really dangerous language. It's the safest language for everyone around you that you could have. Is it dangerous for yourself? So is it dangerous? Because he says, this isn't Darren making stuff up. Yes, even his own life. Is it safe to tell people to hate their own life? I mean, especially with the statistics that we have going around now. Is it safe? Because we were, you know, uh, children and grown-ups today have so much self-hate. Is it safe for us to take this language to hate their own life? If it can be, absolutely, if we're not bringing in the reality of hatred for your own life in comparison to your love for Christ. That's the safest language you could give to someone. That they begin to see themselves not as this person of, of value in and of themselves. They see themselves as a redeemed sinner. They are not totally crushed when they mess up. They're not totally crushed whenever things don't go well in their life. Because the most valuable thing to them is not who they are in and of themselves. They have an accurate view of themselves. And because they love Christ, what they see is that they are made in His image and have miserably messed up. And it has gone wrong. And they have sinned. They have rebelled. But God in Christ has loved them so much that He has sent His Son to live the righteous life they should have lived but didn't, to die the death that they deserve so that they could be adopted into His family. And so when they are able to hate themselves in comparison to their love for Christ... It gives them ballast in their boat. It gives them fuel for life because they're able to see that Christ, because I place him above all things, I then see this reciprocating, this love that has come down for me. And so it actually becomes safe to think of yourself in, in hatred in this language, this strong language, in comparison to your love for Christ. The person who hates themselves in comparison to their love for Christ is in no danger to themselves. Christ loves them far too much. Love for Christ will produce in them obedience to Christ, the one who loves them even in the midst of all the circumstantial ugliness that they are stuck in. Now, verse 27, this is, that's hatred to yourself. This is taking up your cross. Again, language we've heard, um, to follow Christ is to take up your cross. If you refuse to take up your cross, if you refuse to live a life of self-death, um, it's, you cannot be Christ's disciple. To carry your cross is to carry death around. It's to be marked as good as, de as dead. It's to say with Paul in Galatians 6.14 that you're crucified to this world and the world is crucified to you. You're dead to the world and the world is dead to you. If you are unwilling to live your life dead to the world, what does Jesus say? You cannot be his disciple. It's no small matter. I, I don't mind it being... 
a little oppressed because this is, this is tough talk from Jesus. For some of us, there's nothing more alive to us than this world. I'm alive to this world and this world's alive to me and that's, that's everything. And, and there's no cross carrying at all. There's no death about your life for the sake of Christ. And Jesus warns those who do not carry their cross cannot be his disciple. We are more likely to shout out how alive we are to this world and how alive the world is to us. Don't answer too quickly. But ask this question, is the world dead to you? Is, are you carrying a cross? Have you taken up your cross? And the reason why I say don't answer too quickly is because of these two parables. They really, we're not going to go through them. They, they say the, the same exact principle. The, the main idea from them is that you don't want to start what you cannot finish. Don't start what you can't or won't finish. Don't start a building project if you can't complete it. Don't go to war with a warring army if you can't finish the job. Don't start what you're not willing to finish. And Jesus brings up these parables in this call to discipleship. Warning, don't answer too quickly. Do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to be his disciple? It is a free gift, absolutely, that will cost you everything. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Are we counting the cost? Are you ready to follow him? Can you look at the things that surround you and that you care for and count them as garbage in comparison to Christ? That was our Philippians 3 passage, right? We just finished Philippians. Paul says, I count all things as rubbish in comparison to the supreming, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, Philippians 3. This whole idea of counting all as garbage in comparison to the worth of having Christ. Are you willing, are we willing to say, to count all as rubbish if I would just have Christ? I'm willing to part with family if they go a different way. Children, mother, father, brother, even my own self. I have my own desires. Our culture needs this so bad today, the true gospel message of saying no to your own desires and wishes and feelings, the deepest part of your felt needs, being able to say, my desires are not the king of my life. I hate myself even in comparison to my love for Christ. Where does it leave you? Do you ever, I mean, roll it back. Let's, let's walk back from the edge, taking up your cross and following Jesus. Okay, so let's not go total death for Christ. We're not talking martyrdom. Do you ever have a moment in your life where you say no to someone or something for the sake of Christ? Do you ever have an event that will, that will take you away from a, a fellowship or a meeting with someone or, or get involved in your prayer time, take you away from church or something like that, that you say no to? I cannot do this. I, I have a calling. I, I will do this thing. I will be with the people of God. Do you ever have a time that, that if it's going to encroach upon your prayer time? I mean, my generation, the, the smartphone is the worst thing in the world for us. That we sit down and you... Do you ever say no, this is for me, do you ever say no to five minutes of Facebook or Twitter or just random things for, I don't know, silence and solitude, prayer to God? Do you ever say, and if you can't say no, if we can't say no as a people to the simplest of things like that, we should not fool ourselves to think that we are cross-carrying disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Do you ever say no to your own desire to be alone and, and withdrawn when you know you should go t- see someone, visit someone, give them a phone call, care about them, say a prayer for them? If you don't ever do any of these minimal things, do not fool yourself that you're carrying your cross. Listen to this example. I was... I. They're really easy to find. Open Doors is a, is a persecuted church organization. I just pulled this random story of, of their testimony of someone living in Central Asia. Listen to this story. Three years ago, Samita was a Muslim, but an encounter with Jesus changed her life. Today, she's a 23-year-old, 23-year-old young Christian woman living in Central Asia, facing persecution for her newfound faith. They can't release locations because this is out on the internet, and they, they changed her name as well, so they, they have to be careful with this information. But just because Samita discovered the truth of the gospel doesn't exempt her from cultural pressures or realities. In her culture, an unmarried woman is an oddity and spoken about and whispered asides. At age 20, 20, she was regarded as an old maid by her relatives. Most of the girls in her region marry at age 13 to 17, especially in the rural areas. So, despite her newfound faith, Samita found herself under the constant expectation to marry. Unfortunately, there were few Christian men living around her, which meant that two years after she became a believer, she married a Muslim man. Samita was happy with her decision. I married Rashid, it's a a fake name, because he seemed to me to be a good man, she says. Initially, we were very happy until he became more interested in my faith. Certainly, I did not hide the fact that I am a Christian and told him that God touched my life one day. After these words, my husband seemed to change. After Samita gave birth to their daughter, Rashid gave her an ultimatum, her husband. She was to refuse Christ. Otherwise, he would divorce her and take the baby. But Samita still refused to deny Christ. Rashid kicked Samita out of the house, fortunately with her baby, as she moved to be with her mother, Ariza, in the capital city, wherever that is. It was so hugely stressful and such a tragedy for me, she remembers. My beloved husband, who always seemed so kind and caring, he kicked me out of his house with a month-old baby without any means of subsistence. That's the word. Now Samita lives in Ariza's narrow room with her small baby. The authorities of this nation refuse to give them a new flat with good conditions because they are Christians. In the next couple of months, she must make a decision or Rashid will take her daughter. According to the laws of a region in Central Asia, men usually take the children from their wives after they divorce. So this, an Open Doors team, which is this organization, an Open Doors team began to visit Ariza and Samita from time to time to encourage and support them. The team asked her what she needs most. What do you answer there? They come to you. What do you think she says? What do you need most? All this stuff that's going on. What do you need most? What would you answer to there? The team asked her what she needs most. Her response shows the depth of faith that has grown in her. This is what she says. I don't ask God to give me back my husband, to keep my family, she says. Most of all, I need to be strong in my faith. I don't want to lose it, to lose the relationship with Christ. What she is passionate about keeping is her faith in Christ. And if it means the loss of all these worldly good things, we would say... She is most concerned that she would lose this faith with Christ. How ridiculous our trials seem in light of all that some have to give up. And God may not, may not be calling everyone to carry a cross like this one, but do not think there isn't something that God is calling you to. 
Look around this room. How many people need prayer that you could be praying for them? Look around this room. How many people could use phone calls and visits from you that, yes, would encroach upon your personal time? How much leadership is needed at this church? To all, I mean, all sorts of things we could go on and on. How many people are struggling in various areas of their life? And are we answering the call? But why? So, in closing, why should we give up all to follow Christ? Doesn't it go against the whole idea? Free gift costs you everything. What's going on? Oh, our main idea for this morning that I didn't get to is that the Christian life is to be one of uh, the call, the Christian call to discipleship is a death to self, cross-carrying, count the cost call, do not answer lightly. But why should we do this? Why should we answer this call? It's supposed to be this free gift, right? Why is it costing us everything? Well, David Gooding, I think, in his commentary said it best, and I just share this with you here as we close. He says this, a guide might offer to take a party of inexperienced travelers on a highly dangerous journey. He might guarantee that he would bring them safely through. He might offer to do it for nothing and refuse any reward. But he also might very reasonably lay it down as a condition that for the duration of the journey, everyone in the party should hand over themselves and all their possessions and provisions to his control and yield unquestioned obedience to his authority. You understand the point that he's making there. If you're going on a journey, you're lost. You can't get to where you want to go. A guide says, I'll take you. I don't need any reward. I don't need payment. I'll take you. It's free. I'll deliver you to where you want to get to. I can ensure that you'll get there. I'll take you. You think, great. Here's the requirement. All your provisions, all your possessions, everything, all of your obedience needs to be given to me. I need to know that you'll listen to me so that I can make sure there is this or your own survival. He goes on to say, Christ guarantees that he will bring every true disciple through life's journey to the heavenly banquet. On the way, he will teach them the behavior that will be expected of them at the banquet. The banquet itself is free and Christ requires no payment for his services. But he lays down as an indispensable condition that every disciple must renounce all right to his property. But all he must surrender to Christ and be prepared to unquestioningly accept Christ's authority over everything. It may seem like you are giving a lot when you give your all to answer Christ. But when you realize that the guarantee of all that he is giving to you, Christ has promised the first Thessalonians passage we read just this morning, so they will always be with the Lord. This promise of salvation, of eternal life, of guarantee that Christ not only will save you, but bring you all the way home. This guarantee of all that he's giving you is no small thing in comparison to what you would lose in your call to follow Christ. When you realize the guarantee of all that he is giving to you, all of it free of charge to you, purchased by his own blood, there is no way to look at this and think you've been shortchanged. That to hate all of these things, to give up all myself, to give up everything to follow him, when, the, when all is said and done, you will not look at this and think you've been shortchanged. Ultimately, the power to make such choices comes from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the beauty of Jesus and all that he has done and all that he guarantees for us. There is no power great enough inside of us and our pure will to make these choices and stay with it. The power must come from a realization, an illumination, an awakening to the reality of all that Christ has done. What a glorious call this is. 
And even though it's a costly call, what a glorious call this is. The call of the Christian. Death to self. Cross-carrying. Count the cost call. One to not be answered lightly. What a glorious call it is. Why can we gladly agree to the death of all things and the keeping of love for Christ? Because you see and know the love of Christ for you. You know what Christ has done for you. It is a love that has rescued you free of charge and is a love that has promised to see all those who are His all the way home. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see the glorious reality and the good news of the gospel. It is a a high call. It is a heavy call. But God... (laughs) The, the balance of what we are to receive, God, pales in comparison that we would be forgiven of our sins. We who had no way to be in right standing with you, we who had no way to earn our own justification, we who had nothing on our future, nothing on our, our horizon except eternal punishment and separation from you to be given eternal life in the glory of your presence forever. (laughs) The cost is high, but the gift is incredible. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see it, hearts decidedly glad to say, I would forsake all to follow this call of my Savior. As we come to communion, God, I pray that we would come humbled, desperate, answering the call to be yours and yours alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.